We turn to the prophecy of Joel, tucked away between Hosea and Amos, and turn to chapter 2. The bulletin says we begin at verse 12. But it's verse 12 in the context of the verse that immediately precedes it. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army, says verse 11. That army there are the Chaldeans, the Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar that would besiege Jerusalem and then destroy the city and the temple and make a great slaughter of the whole of the nation that remained. His camp is very great. They are likened in Joel to a plague of locusts so numerous and so devastating in what they leave behind. And then it refers to the day of the Lord, great and very terrible, and who can abide it? And that day of the Lord is when the judgment's going to fall upon Jerusalem and destroy it for their apostasy and their abominations. Now, in that context, verse 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind? Even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, and that has to do especially with the elderly. Gather the children, those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. There is something much more pressing and important at this point than any wedding and marriage and joy of marriage. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, that is, among the heathen, Where is their God? Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. I will remove far off from you the northern army, that's the Babylonians, Chaldeans, and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea, that's the Dead Sea, and his hinder part toward the utmost sea, that's the Mediterranean, and his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. In other words, the Lord is going to deal with them in such a way as to drown them, like he drowns locusts. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, the latter rain, in the first month. And the floor shall be full of wheat, and fats shall overflow with wine and oil. 
And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar, the palmer worm, my great army which I sent among you. Ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And now comes our text. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call in the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Thus far the reading of the prophetic word, our text consisting, as I stated, verses 28 through 32 of Joel chapter 2. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And I think almost everyone here is familiar with those words and can recall where, where they were quoted and who it was that quoted the prophet Joel, namely on the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter in response to those who were mocking them because they were speaking in various languages, languages of the Jews that were gathered for a great feast day in their various dialects, not only speaking Aramaic and Greek then, but the dialects of the provinces that they came from all around the Mediterranean world for this feast day, and those who were skeptical said, they're drunk. And the Apostle Peter said, no, we're not drunk. We have drunk of a wine, all right. We have drunk of the wine of the Spirit. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And with that outpouring of the Holy Spirit on that Sunday, which would become, of course, Lord's Day, it had the beginning of the New Testament age. And the New Testament age is an age of evangelism. It is the age of the spread of the gospel. It is the age in which the gospel is given into the care of the renewed and redeemed and instituted church to go forth into all the world and to bring the gospel with the words, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, shall be saved. In other words, not simply a church that was on the defensive and put up borders and refused to have the uncircumcised 
come in among them, lest they be led astray by their idolatries and their fornications, but rather would take the offense and go out actually into the world of the Gentiles with all its idolatry and abominations and preach the gospel. And then once the gospel had been preached and the Spirit had worked his work and gathered believers to institute them into a congregation and then to say to the congregation, now get your bodies back to the Holy Land and live in the Holy Land and we'll protect it against all these uncircumcised. No, you remain in the very city in which you have been saved. And you bear witness to the name of Jesus in the very city in which you have been saved, no matter how worldly and wicked that city is. And there I will preserve you and use you. How is that possible, that great difference and transition? What accounts for the New Testament church and believers able to live right in the midst of the world, yet to be distinguished from the world, and reserved in the Christian faith, and to bear witness to the world, and then be used by the Spirit for the gathering of the church who were uncircumcised. What accounts for that? Who accounts for that? One could say, of course, the ascended Lord Jesus, but he is the Holy Spirit of the ascended Lord Jesus who makes all the difference, doesn't he? The work that he began to work on the day of Pentecost, the age and the beginning of the age of evangelism, of the spread of the gospel and the gathering of those who had Christ had redeemed by his blood. Which raises the question below. Are we interested in the salvation of others? Are we interested in the salvation of others outside of our churches? Not only of our own children and children's children, but the use of the word of God in the interest of saving others, having others saved. God has given us a wonderful truth. They would say the purity of the gospel in very elevated form. The sword. Why? To take it out of the sheath, admire it, what a wonderful truth we have, put it right back into the sheath and go our way? Or is it to be used in the name of the Lord Jesus, conquering and to Conquer, to be used to oppose the lie and falsehood and be used by Christ in the gathering of the church, in the salvation of souls. That's not just the calling of other denominations, beloved. That's the calling of the Protestant churches if we are a church of the new dispensation, according to the great commission as Christ prepared to leave his church behind Go out and preach, and I will use you to save and to baptize unto salvation as well. He who hears you shall be saved. He who turns against you shall be damned. And you have the great commission to the New Testament church. And behold, I 
come again, and I will not return until I have gathered that last soul. As I said in the congregational prayer, the fields are white with harvest. The laborers be few. Will you be used to bolster my laborers? Now you may say, Synod has made certain decisions. I'm not agitating against those decisions. They were made for certain reasons. I'll leave that to the Synod and the broader assemblies. You may say, what can we do about it? Pray, quite simply pray. Pray the Holy Spirit will use us. Raise up others who will preach the gospel and go out into all the world. A wonderful thing when we come to the 100th anniversary that we men, we have men who have launched out into the deep and the Lord is using them, which is to say us and our support and prayers to the gathering of those ordained to eternal life. We do believe they're ordained to eternal life, don't we? They are elect. But the elect, beloved, from the heathen do not come to salvation apart from the hearing of the gospel and the Holy Spirit using that gospel it hath pleased the Lord by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's a burden upon us as churches below. Let's not forget that and this is a text that reminds us of that. And part of the word is, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Whosoever. That's as Calvinistic and Reformed as Calvinism and Reformed can be. Because Calvinism and the Reformed faith are biblical, are they not? Then the promiscuous word must go forth. Whosoever. Not simply from Jewish extraction. Not simply from those who have spiritual pedigree but whosoever the Lord wills to save and makes willing in the day of his power. With that in mind, the Holy Spirit of prophecy promised. When this prophecy was to be fulfilled, from the point of view of, the, of Joel, when what the Spirit comes to bestow and we mean, we mean what in particular does this text point out, and where he is to be found, this Holy Spirit who works salvation and what our text calls deliverance. Deliverance from what? Hell's fire, beloved. The final judgment and condemnation. Repent or perish. That's urgent. And that's the word that must be brought and which the Holy Spirit will use when he wills to save someone. The Holy Spirit of prophecy, when this prophecy was to be fulfilled. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. After what? Well, beloved, first of all, after what you read in verse 11, the day of the Lord, which is great and very terrible. And that has to do, as I have already pointed out, 
with the judgment of God upon apostate Jerusalem and of Judah with their abominations. After that outpouring of wrath, who can abide it? But not just that, beloved, also repentance. You see, the outpouring of this wrath of God upon Jerusalem was a discipline. And it was not a discipline simply to destroy all Jerusalem and all of Judah, because in Jerusalem and Judah there was a remnant, and the Lord would save that remnant. Text even makes a reference to that in some ways, of the remnant whom the Lord shall call. He still had his remnant. And the Lord uses discipline in the interest of the salvation of his remnant. And sometimes the remnant, beloved, needs to be dealt with in severity as well, but that severity itself is love. Love to call one back to oneself and to work the necessary repentance. That's a repentance that is worked by the Holy Spirit, of course, in the transforming of a heart. But he does that in connection with this discipline. And having disciplined and having worked this repentance, then you read concerning, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, the years that have been wasted. And the locusts, of course, would destroy the fields and the pastures so that there was no harvest. No harvest of souls and no harvest of godliness even in a man's life. I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten, he promises in the passage just preceding our text. How, Lord, are you going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, the removal of the gathering of souls, if you will, and even to a measure of, of godliness and years wasted in sin. How will you restore those years? How will you bring that to pass, Lord? By the outpouring of my Holy Spirit, Seth, the prophets, the prophet. That's how I will pour that Spirit upon all flesh. And as gather to myself a people who will then know a repentance unto godliness. And in their godliness, they will bear fruit. And the fruit of that, of course, is described in what we have already read. And once he has gathered his people unto fruitfulness, there's going to come a final judgment. Notice, that our passage is in some ways bracketed by this matter of judgment. 11, as we read, has to do with the, refers to the day of the Lord, who can abide it. That's a day of judgment, great and terrible. But notice 31 in our text also speaks of a great and terrible day of the Lord come. There's another day of judgment. So this is a prophecy that's bracketed by these days of judgment referred to. And after that judgment, and by the way, 31 refers to the final judgment, the day of final judgment will come, the new heavens and the new earth. That's all in some ways encapsulated in this 
text as it speaks of finally even of this of this deliverance and in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be this deliverance and it anticipates the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem itself. And if you read chapter three, that's developed in, a, in, in greater detail. So I ask again, if we were to ask when the prophet says it shall come to pass afterward, when shall these words come to pass? You might answer, well, it came to pass on Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and you would be half right, because that's not the full answer. The full answer to when this promise takes place is not simply on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is the beginning of the fulfillment of these words. This, this word has reference to the whole of the New Testament age. The sower goes forth to sow, beloved, in the whole of the New Testament age to gather to himself a harvest. And the power, of course, has to do with the Holy Spirit. This is a passage, as I've said, that's bracketed by the reference to these two days of judgment. These days are to be distinguished. They are related, but to be distinguished. The first, as I have said, is the day of God's judgment upon Jerusalem and the driving of even his people into Babylon and the land has rest for 70 years in its severity, the severity of the judgment. 31, when it speaks of the great and terrible day of the Lord, has reference to the final judgment to be distinguished from this previous judgment in verse 11. But you understand they're related because this previous judgment foreshadows the final judgment. It leads up to, it speaks concerning that final judgment. The judgment of all things called the, interestingly enough, the day of the Lord. Why would it be called the day of the Lord? It's an interesting phrase to give to the day of God's judgment, severity of judgments, and then even the day of final judgment. Because in the first place, it's the day that the Lord has foretold is coming, and then he would not believe and just dismiss as so much of a story, just simply of a, of a myth and a fairy tale, if you will. It will never occur. We have nothing to worry about. It's the day of the Lord because there comes a day when his word will be fulfilled, and then he will reveal himself. They will see the Lord, and the final day of judgment, we will see the Lord Jesus, and all those who denied at the day of final judgment will have to realize they were in error and denied the very God of truth. But even in that earlier judgment, in the destruction of Jerusalem, God revealed himself as the God of truth because the prophet spoke of this judgment, and they said, we don't have to worry about it, nothing to worry about, it'll never come, he'll never do that, and then he did. And he's revealed as the God of truth, the day of the Lord. But in the final judgment, Christ Jesus himself revealed, and all those who have denied his coming, as many do these days, will be revealed in their unbelief and in their error, and taken, of course, to task point we must make is that when 
God speaks of the final judgment. Men will never be able to say, but we were not forewarned. We were not informed of this coming of the great day of the Lord. The response will be, you had plenty of warning, but you would not pay heed because you were too much in love with your sins and your transgressions and your abominations and the appetites for this world and did not want to forsake your appetites for this world in the interests of turning unto the Lord and serving him and denying yourself. It's striking, you know, how many times there's reference to the coming of this great day of judgment. You have it here in Joel chapter 2. How does the Old Testament conclude itself? Malachi, last chapter, second to the last verse of the last book of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. There it is. Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. If I did not sin, and of course this is reference to John the Baptist, as you know, pointing to Christ as the Messiah. If I do not send my Messiah... According to the words of the second Elijah, I have more than enough reason simply to destroy the world so there is no salvation at all and just cast the whole business into the abyss and that's that. All hope for being saved from everlasting condemnation is lost. But I am a God who is long-suffering to you, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. I'm talking to people, beloved, 2,000 years after Pentecost, as we sit here, he was long-suffering to us word that we should not perish. I suppose you could say we wouldn't even have existed, but we certainly would have no expectation of the glory of, of heaven and eternal life apart from the coming of this Messiah, according to the words of Elijah the prophet, who turned the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the to the fathers, and I want to remind you of the words of that John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 as he began to preach. He speaks there by way in Matthew 3 of 8, bringing forth there for fruits meet fit for repentance. Not simply, I'm a great sinner, I'm a great sinner, I'm a great sinner, and I go right on to my sin. That's not repentance. Anybody can say they're a great sinner. Fruits fit for repentance, that show repentance is sincere. Think not to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. We have spiritual pedigree, you know. Don't have anything to worry about. The Lord can raise from these stones children to Abraham. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit, it's godliness, call it good works if you will. I'll call it godliness is hewn down, cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. He that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit and with fire. It doesn't say water there. Fire. Whose fan is in his hand, he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
That's the great and dreadful day of the Lord, if you recall the parable, when the wheat is separated from the tares. And the wheat is brought to the barn, but the tares are cast into the flames, into the everlasting fire. But he's the Holy Ghost and a fire with us too, because fire not only burns and destroys, but there is a fire also that purges and cleanses, does it not? So is this Holy Spirit. And I want to come back to the point I have been, I wanted to make, that before that, this great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, that's referred to here in Joel chapter 31, that terrible day when the sun turns into darkness and the moon into blood, because there's dust in the air, according to this great judgment, which is more dreadful, you know, than the judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah. That was a severe judgment, to be sure, slaughter, slaughter, slaughter. But the final judgment is more severe because it's final. It's final. And it's not only against a nation and upon a nation apostatizing and working sin, lacking repentance and fruits meet for repentance, but it's upon the whole of the world, upon every nation, the whole of man. Kind. That's the severity of the final judgment. And there is no more salvation. It's the reason why I read the salutation I did, you know. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Today, you may say, well, we have nothing to worry about. The final judgment is not coming for years and years. Maybe coming sooner than we think, but it's not coming for years to year, years and years. Maybe. You're sure you're going to be alive tomorrow? Are you sure of that? And live tomorrow? If you and I die before the day of final judgment, we will still appear at the final judgment, beloved. We will still stand there and be judged, every last one of us, according to our works and who we are and who we confessed and how we lived unto him or not. That great and dreadful day of the Lord. But you understand that does not come without God forewarning concerning it. That is how it is with great catastrophes. The striking thing, I was in Linden, Washington two months ago, and during the week between the Lord's Days I preached, we went down to Mount St. Helens and went into the resource room. I had explaining what was ha- happened concerning Mount St. Helens, very educational. And what they made plain is that while it's true that Mount St. Helens erupted, interestingly enough, on a Sunday, a Lord's Day morning, May 18 of 1980, it didn't just simply blow its top one day. There were all kinds of warnings that this eruption was coming. There was seismic activity that increased day by day. And only a month before the eruption, they talked about thousands of minor earthquakes. Something was rumbling down there, seeking to break loose. And finally, part of the mountain even started to bulge a bit. And, of course, they began to evacuate. But there were those who said, we have nothing to fear. We've lived here all our life. We're staying. This is just a vain threat. And then it erupted, of course. And those who remained were carried away into devastation. There was forewarning. And the fool stayed. And I want to add one more volcanic eruption because this has to do with the apostolic age, Mount St. or it's not St. but Vesuvius. 
during the apostolic age in the 60s erupted just south of Rome. Pompeii, as the excavation has demonstrated, was San Francisco, Las Vegas, New Orleans, all rolled up into one. There was no abomination that they did not commit. If you go to chapter 3, verse 3, you read of casting lots, giving a boy for a harlot, selling a girl for wine that they might drink. That kind of abomination. You think there's anything new under the sun, beloved? In the kind of age we live in? Read that text. It's exactly what's going on. With government approval and an unwillingness to expose it and calling this right and if you stand against it they'll use the word racist because that's the trigger word or whatever other word you want to use. Those abominations, Pompeii, and there were forewarnings, but they were so snared by their sins, who was going to pay? We're not going to leave our fleshly delights. We're going to remain here in our sins and abominations, only we, we call it our enjoyments and our delights. And on the appointed day, Vesuvius erupted, and the sun turned into darkness, and the moon blood, the color of blood with the dust of the air, pillars of smoke and fire, and there was death, death, death visited upon the fools at the, at the foot of that mountain. The judgments of God, beloved, as they continue in the whole of creation to this present day and speak of the truthfulness of the Lord and is foretelling what shall be prior, prior to the great and dreadful day of the Lord and this day of final judgment. So the scriptures, as we have already pointed out, speak of these judgments of the Lord. And I want to point out that that word of the Lord also attended another great redemptive event, didn't it? Of the cross. It is finished. Father, into thy, my hands, thy hands I commend my spirit. And there was a great earthquake. So much so that the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom exposing a nation. Now is the judgment of this nation. Ichabod, the glory has departed. There is no more gospel in this nation. I must institute a new church, temple if you will, who will carry my gospel and speak my gospel, but not in the nation of the Jews and of the Israel. They are done. Ichabod was a day of judgment. And the, two, and the great and terrible day. There was darkness that day, wasn't there? To be sure on that Saturday morning the next day, there was also, if they saw the moon, it was red as they peered at it through the dust. Speaking of the coming of a final judgment. And then he rose from the dead. And there was another great earthquake wasn't there. And the sepulcher, the door of the, the rock of the stone of the sepulcher was rolled away to, remove, to show the empty tomb. But the whole point is there's another day of judgment. And now is the judgment of this world. The foundation has a fissure in it. And this world with its kingdom under the rule of Satan and wickedness is condemned and is going to be brought down for demolition with the death of all the inhabitants in it. But I have a remnant yet in this structure. 
And so the gospel must go forth. I will postpone judgment upon this present world that the word may go forth and I will gather the citizens, the inhabitants of this building, of the structure that has been condemned. And only when that last soul has been evacuated, saved, delivered, escape, will I bring this structure down to utter ruin. But it has already been condemned and the demolition simply waits, beloved, as the Lord postpones final judgment as he will save his own. How, Lord, wilt thou save thy own? I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So, beloved, the, gust, the, the word that we preach isn't simply judgment, judgment, judgment. There is words of judgment that must be preached. There are many today, of course, who don't care in the name of Christ Jesus and the word of God to speak of judgment and final judgment and the return of Christ in judgment. They just simply want to speak love, love, love. And that means love in the sense of really God doesn't disapprove of anything anyone does. And if he does, don't worry about a final judgment. There will never be any hell because God in love would never cast anybody into hell. Well, that might be their good news, but it's terrible news. It's false news. And those who follow that will wake up someday in hell itself. There is, beloved, a day coming of final judgment, and that must be preached. But it's not the only thing that we preach. The end is near. Of course, they will sneer and laugh at that as well. But the days do come. We preach that judgment in the interest of the gospel because those under judgment may yet have a hope if they turn to hear what the Lord has to say in his mercy. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And the working of that spirit, beloved, is the one who will restore that which the locusts have eaten. In other words, this Holy Spirit comes as the Spirit who will bring forth a harvest. And it's a harvest of souls. And it's souls that themselves will bear fruit unto godliness. Repentance unto godliness. That's really what, what the prior text is, is speaking of as, as it speaks of, of these uh, corn and wine and oil and and so on, and the fruitful trees. That's agricultural language, but it's like the parables. Agricultural language in the interest of spiritual truth and spiritual fruit born in the lives of those who have escaped, who have been delivered by the power of this Holy Spirit who comes not only as a fire to purge and refine, but also as water, the water from heaven, the rain from heaven. We speak in agricultural language. And every farmer knows if you're going to have a harvest, you need three things. You need seed. Seed. Without seed, you're not going to have a harvest. And if you want an abundant harvest, you better plant plentifully. Because if you're going to be frugal with your seed, you're going to have a scarce harvest as well. But you need more than seeds. It won't help you know if you throw those seeds out in the parking lot. They're, even I know you're not going to get a crop from seeds on a parking lot or soil that has not been prepared. 
There has to be the preparation of the soil as well. Who prepares the soil? And then you need water because seed on dry soil, no matter cultivated or not, will not bear forth fruit. It will not germinate. So it is in the spiritual realm, beloved. You need the word, but the word by itself will accomplish nothing saving. It just remains the words of a man trying to persuade other men. Nothing happens until the spirit comes and transforms hearts, cultivates those hearts. But he not only cultivates the hearts, beloved, then he comes in the fullness, you see, the fullness of the spirit as the outpouring of the rain, of the irrigation, if you will, but of the water. And then you have fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. So it is with this Holy Spirit and what he, as God, accomplishes in the harvest of souls. And notice, beloved, it is the, the harvest of all flesh upon all flesh. And Peter makes reference to that as well. Reminding them the reason we come in these different languages is because God is going to now begin to gather his church from every nation, tribe, and tongue in where these languages are found. It will come to you in your language. And as you hear the word in your language and the spirit works, he will gather you into his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven manifest on earth, ruled by the king from heaven itself, which means, of course, that the Gentiles are to be brought in as Gentiles. In other words, they didn't have to be saved, circumcised, be circumcised, and then go to the promised land, to the holy land. They could remain Gentiles in the city where they were converted and, and saved, uncircumcised, with which, of course, even the apostle Peter had great difficulty if you're Recall, you mean they can come in as they are, uncircumcised? Yes, Peter, they can come into the kingdom as they are, uncircumcised, and eat those things that were once forbidden by law. Rise, Peter, kill and eat upon the rooftop in Joppa. But Lord, you know very well, I have never eaten that which is common and unclean. What God hath cleansed, Peter, that call not thou common knock, knock on the door, and he's sent to the house of Cornelius up in Caesarea Philippi, and he enters into that house of Cornelius the, of, of, of Philippi, and he says, I've been sent here, I saw this vision, I've been sent here, and then he's, he commands us to preach unto the people, to testify that it is he that God hath ordained to be the judge of the living and the dead. Notice, salvation in the context of God as judge. If you do not believe the gospel I preach to you, you're going to perish at the hands of God as judge of the living and the dead. To him gave all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him, notice that phrase again, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. While he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell on all them that heard the word, and they of the circumcision who believed were astonished because that on the Gentiles was poured the gift of the Holy Ghost, if you can believe it. He's actually working in the heart of the uncircumcised. They heard him speak with tongues, magnifying God. Peter says, can any man forbid water that they should not be baptized that have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? 
commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. They prayed him to tarry certain days. What's interesting is that the very next chapter deals at length with questions put to Peter when they returned to Jerusalem. Are you telling us, Peter, that you actually ate and had fellowship with the uncircumcised? And Peter has to justify why he had fellowship with the uncircumcised. The Holy Spirit came and he implies, what do, we th- what do you think, brethren? We're holier than the Spirit himself. He can have fellowship with these uncircumcised believers, but we can't. We're more holy than the Holy Spirit. Is that what you're saying? I think we better think this through, gentlemen. The Holy Spirit is indicating they are one with us as they are and as they have been saved. And they also are members in the church, full members with you and myself. So, beloved, the great work of the Holy Spirit in the gathering of the church from all flesh. But notice now, briefly, what it is that the Holy Spirit brings upon those whom he so saves. You may say salvation, but the text focuses upon a certain aspect of that salvation and how he accomplishes that salvation that it might be a matter of faith and repentance and that ties in with that word prophesy. They shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams and, and visions, but your sons and daughters shall prophesy. You understand, beloved, that has to do with knowledge. When it says prophesy, it's not saying here, and they will be able to foretell the future, though you and I can say something about the future. Christ is going to come again, according to the scriptures. I can prophesy that. He's coming again. I can promise you that, assure you of that. Exactly when I don't know, but the signs indicate every word that he has said is true and to be believed. But the great gift of the Holy Spirit unto salvation has to do with knowledge and understanding and a fullness of knowledge and understanding, not the tongues and the languages. That sign passed away. Not even the gift of healing that was temporary to underscore the authority of the apostles that they really did represent Christ Jesus ascended who was alive in heaven. He gave them the power, otherwise they couldn't heal these people of their, of their diseases. Christ Jesus, the healer, was obviously still alive in heaven, and they represented him. They passed away, the apostles did, the scriptures are fulfilled, those signs pass away as well. But not knowledge. And the knowledge, beloved, has to do with being able to understand the prophets. That's why it's called, they shall prophesy. They can read the prophets, as we are doing this evening, and explain what those prophets mean, why they why they refer in the end to Christ Jesus as Christ Jesus was revealed in the New Testament age. Something and the kingdom itself and the nature of the, of the kingdom. Something, you know, that the Old Testament saints were not able to do to the degree we are. The evidence of that is in Acts chapter 1, after Christ has risen from the dead, spent 40 days with them, and they stand in Mount Olives, and he says, I'm going to ascend up into heaven, and... Uh, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Why do we need to be baptized with the Holy Ghost? I'll tell you why. They came together saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? They were still looking for an earthly kingdom. Christ had arisen from the dead and explained the scriptures to them, and they understood there had to be the death of Christ for the sacrifice of sin and sinners, but they were still looking for an earthly kingdom. Christ has to remain with us and rule on David's throne. How else can we have a kingdom? They still didn't understand 
the Old Testament in its spiritual significance. Then comes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and Peter prophesied. Peter turns to Joel and explains it in its New Testament meaning. Suddenly his eyes are open. He has been illuminated. He can now explain the Old Testament as it ought to be explained in the light of what Christ has done and as it will carry through the whole of the New Testament age. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. They will have the Holy Spirit in the office of all believer and have understanding that surpasses all of their ancestors. Notice, beloved, by the way, sons and daughters, which is covenantal. doesn't mean just little boys and girls. It means from generation to generation. The old men and so on and mothers teaching their children and the Spirit working in generations so that that understanding continues through the church, the whole of the New Testament, the whole of the New Dispensation, and upon the servants and the handmaids as well, and then this matter of the showing of the wonders. So the building of the knowledge below. A knowledge that is not simply given to those who will preach the gospel. It was given to the apostles in a special way, and there have been given to the church those of of great intellect and ability. Apostle Paul was a man of outstanding intellect and ability. Augustine, the church father, a man of outstanding ability and understanding. John Calvin, Luther, so on. But not just simply men, men and women, boys and girls, male and female. This is the office of all believer. To bear witness, there are those who will preach the gospel that every one of us, beloved, is to bear witness. You don't have to be a deep theologian to bear witness to Christ Jesus, to others with whom you have contact in the interest of what you call evangelism. What's the heart of the witness of a Christian? I'll tell you what the heart of the witness of a Christian is, beloved, as you walk your godliness and they see that you live in a different way and maybe make questions about why you do this and don't do that. But the heart of the witness is this. There is but one name under heaven by which a man can be saved and must be saved, and that's the Lord Jesus. You know how simple that is, how foundational, fundamental, and yet how offensive that is in this day and age? Try it in college, even in many a Christian college, that there's salvation only in one other name, not in the Muslim so-called God, not in the Mormon so-called corruption of Everything has to do with truth in Christ Jesus and all the rest in these Indian religions. One only name under heaven by which a man may be saved. This Christ Jesus, who is the one whose spirit this is, who comes with the fullness of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. What's so special about this Christ Jesus? I've asked that in catechism. Why is it that there's salvation in Christ Jesus and Usually hand in hand went up. Well, he died on the cross. So did two thieves. Can you be saved by faith in the name of two thieves? Or even one thief, thief who was the elect? This one only name, beloved, because there is no other son of man who is the son of God at the same time. That's what gives his cross the significance it has. The eternal atonement, the eternal value of that atonement. The infinite value, I should say, unto eternal Life, the one name under heaven by which men may be saved, whose name I confess. He is the Son of God, meaning he has all authority 
and everything you read in the Bible concerning him is truth because he is God and he will not then lie, nor can the word concerning him lie. And then what he means to me. Can you persuade a man to become a Christian? No, you can't. But the Spirit can use you to prick a man's heart and bring him unto salvation and a seeking of the truth. As you say, and this is what he means to me in his fullness. Without him, I'm empty and I have no purpose in life. But with him, I have direction in life. I have answers to the great questions of life and how we are to live and what lifestyle bears good fruit and the blessing of God and brings joy and happiness and fellowship in the end. Come with me and you may hear the gospel and perhaps the Lord will save you as well. Whosoever believeth shall be saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice, whosoever, not simply says some, the elect, they are the elect, but the word is whosoever, no matter how you have lived. Notice, I do not say, and no matter how you intend to live. Come, make a confession of Christ Jesus, and if you want to continue living just as you've been living, go on. No, no. Whosoever shall call upon his name, God's name in Christ Jesus, casting yourself upon God's mercy in Christ's name, no matter how you have lived, shall be saved. Come in the way of repentance unto godliness, and the Lord will acknowledge you as his own. And you will know that you have within you the work of the Holy Spirit, who has cultivated your heart to begin with, that you could respond in this way. Where is that knowledge to be found, beloved? In the church. Notice, for in Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. doesn't simply say Zion and Jerusalem shall be saved, referring to the church, though you could say they are saved, but it's in Zion and Jerusalem that you shall find deliverance. Escape from judgment and wrath unto salvation. In the church institute, in this day and age, membership, beloved, in the church institute that preaches the gospel, how fundamental that is. If you will be saved and you will know the blessing of the Holy Spirit, not apart from the church institute, but within the church institute, and then in there by the preaching of the gospel be preserved, beloved, unto everlasting salvation, as the Holy Spirit not only continues to work a faith, but a repentance that is the way of godliness, that is the straight and narrow way that leads unto everlasting life. Then, beloved, you and I have no judgment to fear, no final judgment. For us is not the abyss, but the joy and the glory in the name of Christ Jesus, by the power of his good and holy spirit. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, write it upon our hearts, give us understanding, true knowledge of self and of thee, and what thou hast done for us in Christ Jesus, and what thou dost work in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.